Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As was pointed out, we have no PowerPoint. I don't normally use PowerPoint, except when I've been teaching through the doctrinal statement. I do have a paper copy of my uh, charts, so we'll muddle through without it. We are working our way through the doctrinal statement of the church. This is the fifth lesson. We started with the doctrine of the scripture. We believe the Bible is the infallible word of God. We went to God himself. God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then we talked about angels, both fallen and unfallen, where we introduced the idea of spiritual beings and fallen spiritual beings. Last week, we talked about mankind, the fact that we were created in the image of God, and what did that mean? And then we talked about the fact that we, too, fell into sin by disobeying God. So today we're on, if you have your doctrinal statement, we are on section 5. And I will begin with a quote. I was so looking forward to putting this up on the screen. By a noted scholar, our beloved pastor. If you listened to last week's sermon or were there when it happened... We are beginning a series on the second coming. And at the beginning of that, actually at 10 minutes into it, because I listened to it five times so I could write it down correctly, he said this, the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. We're not going into all the dispensationalism ideas that are packed into that statement. Well, today, we are going into all those dispensational ideas. Today we are going to talk about dispensationalism and what that means and why you should care. But to be a little bit different than I normally am, I know that many of you, some of you, leave halfway through my lesson because you get so tired of it you just walk out. <laughs> Actually, the choir leaves, in case you didn't know. I'm going to jump to the end, and I'm going to give the conclusion. I want you to know where we're going with all this, because as Ben alluded to, it's going to confuse some of us, okay? I remember as a child looking at books that my mother had and staring at charts like this. Any of you ever seen a chart like this? Yeah, I've got lots of them in this book about dispensationalism. Being a kind of a visual kind of guy, I love looking at charts. But you sit there and you go, okay, what do all these ups and downs mean? Let me tell you the conclusion of this lesson. Point number one, we believe that God has worked in different ways at different times. If somebody asks me, what is dispensationalism? That's my definition. It's not a technical definition. It may not even be a correct definition. But all dispensationalism says is that God has at different times throughout human existence dealt with human beings in different ways. Now, that's going to prompt what is going to produce a lot of the problems. Because what we're going to see is distinctions 
between the dispensations while at the same time looking at the continuity because it's the same God dealing with the same fallen human beings and it is always by faith. So we're going to look at the distinctions while at the same time looking at the continuity. If you don't think there's any continuity, you might be what is referred to as an ultra-dispensationalist. An ultra-dispensationalist breaks history down into these airtight compartments and there's no jumping across the barrier. If you believe there's, well, nothing but continuity, that God has continually worked the same way throughout all of history, you're going to be like a pastor I heard one time. He was a young pastor, great, great guy. But as somebody told me, he can't preach his way out of a box. And he's talking about the Old Covenant, and he's talking about the New Covenant, and he says, yeah, and you know what the New, the new Covenant is? It's exactly like the Old Covenant. And I'm going, no, nah, I don't think so. Okay? Great guy. So we have distinctions, and we have continuity. And that's what we're actually going to talk about in this section. So point one, we believe that God has worked in different ways at different times. Number two, we believe that understanding what is required of man in these different times is a necessary part of understanding the Scripture. What does it take to be saved today? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Go back to the time before, say, Noah. How were you saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. Well, I don't know. We've got to think about that for a while. We have to figure out what is required in the Bible at any given point in time. Why is this important? We are going to get to all this, by the way. This is just the conclusion. We know that the sacrificial system that was given to Moses over there in the book of Leviticus, for example, um, we know that the sacrificial system, we know that it points to Christ. We know that. But here's the question. Did the people at the time have to know that? And I'm going, "Ah, I'm not sure. Now, it still had to be done by faith. Because eventually, the prophets are going to tell the Jewish people, stop it with the stupid sacrifices. They didn't use the word stupid. Why was he telling them to stop it if they were commanded to do it? Because they weren't doing it by faith. They had this idea that if I slit the throat of this lamb, regardless of what my attitude is toward any of this, if I go through the motions, it's all good, I'm right with God. And that never works. Ever. To understand the scripture, we have to understand what is required of mankind at each point of history. We believe that God still has something 
planned for the Jews. Okay? If you really want to see a distinction between dispensationalism and other orthodox forms of Christianity, it is this. What did I quote Cody as saying last week? The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. Why is that important? Well, there are those who believe Israel had its chance. It messed up. It rejected the Messiah. They're done with. I've mentioned in here before, I had a co-worker, friend, who was a Christian, born and raised in Lebanon. And for the life of him, he could not understand why American Christians gave a flip about the Jews. They're done. They had their chance. They messed up. It's over. We don't believe that. We believe that God still has something in mind for the nation of Israel. I believe that Romans 9, 10, and 11 clearly teach that he's going to do something. Now, this also brings us back to another main point of dispensationalism. And that is the idea that as much as we possibly can, we're going to look at the Bible literally. And why do I say as much as we can? We know, right, that the Psalms may have poetry, they use imagery, and we interpret it as poetry. But when God says to the nation of Israel, I'm going to give you this land forever, he means I'm going to give you this land forever. It doesn't mean that the church is now the new Israel, and somehow we have to take this and spiritualize this blessing into something that it's not. So, the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. Now, at some point, Israel is going to have to recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There's no getting around that. But, God still has something in mind for the nation of Israel. And the final point is this. Then we can go home. We'll be done. The final point is this. You do not have to be a dispensationalist to join this church. Did you know that? You don't have to be a dispensationalist to be a Christian. You don't have to be a dispensationalist to enjoy the presence of God in your life. Now, At the end of this, I'm going to recommend a book by Charles Ryrie called Dispensationalism Today. It happens to be my favorite book because I think Ryrie does a good job of humbly presenting what it means to be a dispensationalist. Uh, I've got, this is the copy that I read. There's a new improved copy. I read this one 40 years ago. And he has a discussion at the end. He says, Dispensationalism is not the most important subject in our understanding of the Bible. Oh, are you saying it's not important? No, it is important. It's just not the most important. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. This lesson is different than the others in that I don't end up with a statement that says, All Orthodox Christian groups believe this, because they don't. 
Dispensationalism is a distinction of what is known as the Bible church movement, of which we are a part. Now, generally, when people talk about dispensationalism, they think about it in regard to the second coming. We are not going to talk about the second coming. They're leaving already. (laughs) We're not going to talk about the second coming. Eventually, we will, but not today. And eventually, we might not have to because we're doing five or six sermons on it, and I may be off the hook. But in today's and last week's sermon notes, there's this chart down here at the bottom. You'll see it when you get the sermon notes for today. This is dispensationalism, except we're looking at the part of it before this chart, because the dispensations go all the way back to creation. So... We are not dealing with the second coming today, but suffice it to say, dispensationalists are pre-tribulational, pre-millennialists. And if you don't know what that is, we might get to it in about six weeks. Okay? That's the introduction. What does it mean? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2. Well, let's just get a running start into it. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Well, we could keep reading. But verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. The King James says, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, the stewardship, the dispensation. The word that we get from which we get dispensation, is the same word for stewardship. A steward is person, someone put under the authority of, well, the owner, and he's given a task to do, and he is going to be judged by whether he does that task well or poorly. We see this in a number of different parables In the New Testament, the master leaves, he leaves the steward in charge of the property. And sometimes the steward does well, well done, good and faithful servant. Sometimes the the steward does poorly. All a dispensational is, a dispensation is, is a particular point in time where God has given us stewardship in a particular way. Adam and Eve are put in the garden. Adam and Eve are told to tend the garden. Well, be fruitful and multiply and tend the garden. And if, if they hadn't broken the next part of it, which is don't eat of that fruit, 
If they hadn't have done that, I am convinced today that the whole earth would be the Garden of Eden, being tended by the descendants of Adam and Eve. But that didn't happen. Because not only did he say, be fruitful and multiply, he said, don't eat, and they did. They were the stewards in charge of the garden, and they did not do what the master wanted. That is a dispensation. In particular, that dispensation is referred to as the dispensation of innocence because they were not sinners until they violated the word of God. So, I know I don't have it on an overhead. We believe that the dispensations are stewardships by which God administers his purpose on the earth through man under varying responsibilities. Does that make sense? God says, Adam and Eve do this. God says, Noah do this. God says, Moses do this. God says, these are what we refer to as different dispensations. What is a dispensation? The Schofield Bible gives the definition as a dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. My first adult Bible is this one right here. It is a King James Schofield Bible. How many of you have ever owned a Schofield Bible? My mother says when she was growing up, the notes in the Schofield Bible carried about as much weight as the text in the Schofield Bible. I will give you a warning. Don't believe that. Okay? I like study Bibles. I have numerous ones. But there is the text, which is the inspired word of God. And there are the notes, which are someone's, maybe, hopefully, good interpretation of that. Okay? Charles Ryrie says, a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. The idea is economy. It is a do this, receive this, don't do that, don't receive, or receive something else that's bad. So, back to the section. We believe that the changes in the dispensational dealings of God with man depend on changed conditions or situations in which man is successively found with relation to God, and that these changes are the result of the failures of man and the judgments of God. The dispensation changes because we keep messing it up. We do. Don't eat, we ate. It was as simple as that. Now, we are in the dispensation today known as the church age, which is the age of grace. What does that mean? It isn't a matter of eating the fruit or not eating the fruit. It isn't a matter of doing this or not doing that. It's not a matter of 
following the law or not following the law. It is a matter of the grace of God. Let's keep going. We believe that different administrative responsibilities of this character are manifest in the biblical record, that they span the entire history of mankind, and that each ends in the failure of man under the respective test and in an ensuing judgment from God. We believe that three of these dispensations, or rules of life, are the subject of extended revelation in Scripture, viz. the dispensation of the Mosaic Law, the, dispensa- the present dispensation of grace, and the future dispensation of the Millennial Kingdom. We believe that these are distinct and are not to be intermingled or confused as they are chronologically successive. What does that mean? First off, how many dispensations are there? Let's just go there. You do know, right, that, because I've said this before, you know, Doug Cecil technically is the guy on staff that you're supposed to go to with all your theological questions. I don't know how he got stuck with that job. I would hate it. But anyway, I went up and asked him one time, how many dispensations are there? And I loved his answer. Well, there's at least four. There's probably no more than nine. So the answer is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> How about seven? Our church identifies seven, but we're not going to scream and shout too much, which let me back up a little bit more. Um, we had a guy here at the church teach a lesson on dispensationalism. The guy is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. He did a great job. Great job. And then I overheard somebody later saying, he messed it all up. And I'm going, what are you talking about? This sometimes looks a whole lot like our discussions about the Second Coming, in that people have very strong opinions about very minute pieces of it. Okay. Anyway, the doctrinal statement says that there are three dispensations that have a lot said about them. The first being the Mosaic period. God took um, the nation of Israel out of captivity. Moses went up on the mountain got the law, not just the law, but a whole series of other instructions on how things were supposed to be done, the sacrificial system, all of that, that is the Mosaic period. The second one is the current period, which is the church age. The third one, which is what the sermon series is going to be about, will be the millennial kingdom. Okay? Those are the three that are talked about the most, but there are others. But remember what the thing said. We should not confuse and intermingle these three periods of time. How do we do that? Well, we know how it was done in the early church. We know from the book of Galatians that Paul is teaching grace to the church at Galatia. 
And behind him are coming in the Judaizers who say, you want to be a good Christian? You have to be a good Jew to be a good Christian. You have to meet all the requirements of this dispensation before you can succeed in this dispensation. And Paul says, heck no. He actually says it's stronger than that. He says, no, that's that, this is this. Do not confuse or intermingle the two. That's what the doctrinal statement is talking about. We believe that the dispensations, pay attention to this, this is the second full paragraph. We believe that the dispensations are not waves of salvation nor different methods of administering the so-called covenant of grace. Hmm. They are not in themselves dependent on covenant relationships, but are ways of life and responsibility to God, which test the submission of man to his revealed will during a particular time. Test the submission of man to God's revealed will at a particular time. We believe that if a man does trust in his own efforts to gain the favor of God or salvation under any dispensational test, because of inherent sin, his failure to satisfy fully the just requirements of God is inevitable and condemnation sure. We believe that the dispensations, back to the start of the paragraph, are not ways of salvation nor different methods of administering a so-called covenant of grace. Remember my early comment. We have distinctions and we have continuity. And Messing these things up and saying things are distinct when they're not or saying things are continuous when they're not is going to produce confusion. Question, was Abraham saved? Yes, he was. He believed in God and it was credited to him, written to his account as righteousness. We see that in the book of Romans. So, was he saved apart from the blood of Jesus Christ? Did he know who Jesus Christ was? No. We would love to think that Abraham was sitting back there understanding the book of Isaiah, which wasn't written, that there was going to be a suffering Messiah, understanding the book of Matthew, which wasn't written, understanding the book of Romans, which wasn't written, and somehow he saw Jesus. No. Was he saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Yes, he was. 
But he was saved because his, of his obedience to the revealed will of God at that point in time. He believed God by faith. We're going to see that in just a moment. Faith is the common factor throughout all the dispensations. All Adam and Eve had to do was believe God and not Satan. They had to have faith. But they didn't have to know that that sacrifice that was made to make the clothing, the covering for them was a picture of Jesus Christ. That's why when Jesus, after the resurrection, is on the road to Emmaus, he talked to the disciples and pointed to all that Old Testament stuff and said, that's me. And they were astonished. Why? Because they didn't understand that. Nor was it necessarily required that they understand it. What was required is that they respond by faith to the instructions that God had given them. I am a good Israelite just coming into the promised land. We have built our cities and I offer a sacrifice or the priest offers the sacrifice. Is that sacrifice efficacious? Is it effective? And the answer is yes, if it's done by faith. If it is done merely as a series of outward motions, it is not efficacious. It is not effective. Let's keep going. We believe that according to the eternal purpose of God, salvation is the divine reckoning, is always by grace through faith, and rests on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. We believe that God has always been gracious, regardless of the ruling dispensation, but that man has not at all times been under an administration or stewardship of grace, as is true in the present dispensation." We are in a time of grace. It was always Jesus. It was always faith. But it was faith in the revealed will of God at a particular point in time. It wasn't having to pretend that you understood what you couldn't possibly understand. Adam and Eve simply had to obey by faith. Did God really say, what prevents you from giving in to the lie when somebody says, did God really say? What prevents you is faith. Faith says, well, God said, don't do it. Guess what? I'm not going to do it. C.S. Lewis has an interesting book that uh, is not one of his best-known ones, where a character goes to a planet and meets their Adam and Eve, and they don't sin. It's a different story. <sighs> one more paragraph, and we go back to the conclusion. Oh. We believe that it has always been true 
that without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, you know chapter 11, the roll call of the faithful, it goes through this list of people. They did this by faith, they did this by faith, they did this by faith. You know what? Those were all Old Testament folks. Abraham had faith, this person had faith, this person had faith, and it was credited to them as righteousness. It is always about faith. And that the principle of faith was prevalent in the lives of all the Old Testament saints. However, this is what I've been saying, however, we believe that it was historically impossible that they should have had the conscious object of their faith, the incarnate crucified, the Lamb of God. We cannot expect them to know what we know today on the basis of our understanding of the rest of the Bible. We, we can't expect that, nor does God require that. And that it is evident that they did not comprehend, as we do, that the sacrifices depicted the person and work of Christ. We believe also that they did not understand the redemptive significance of the prophecies or types concerning the sufferings of Christ. Therefore, we believe that their faith toward God was manifest in other ways, as shown by the long record in Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 40. We believe further that their faith thus manifested was counted unto them as righteousness. So... What is a dispensation? It is a period of time where God has revealed to humanity this is what you need to do to be right with God. Generally, always, these periods are concluded with failure on the part of humanity. You and I could argue, and I probably would, that what God was doing was revealing to all mankind, you cannot do it on your own. You just can't do it. You know, I'm convinced today that you can be saved by following the law. All you have to do is obey it from the day you're born until the day you die in thought, word, and deed. We're all toast. Why? Last week's lesson, we were born sinners. Therefore, we sin. So it can't be done. But I believe that if I were a good Israelite, offering my sacrifice, it would be, what was the word? Efficacious. It would be effective. So we see the distinct periods in time, and we see the continuity that it is always by faith, and even if they did not know it, it is always by faith in God but it is the blood of Jesus Christ that saves even those who do not know it. And that's okay. That's okay. We believe that there will be a dispensation in the future, the millennial kingdom, followed by the eternal state. That won't be today's sermon, but it'll be the sermons in the weeks to come. I would open up to questions, but that would be a really stupid thing to do. <laughs> I want to reiterate 
There are really good Orthodox Christians who do not believe this. They believe the Bible. They believe God. What do they do? Well, some of them do confuse the idea of Israel and the church. They just do. We believe that that leads to a false understanding of certain passages of the Bible. I was born and raised a dispensationalist. As I said, my Schofield reference Bible. The church I grew up in uh, later, we had an interim pastor, great guy. And he was filling in until we hired a new pastor, called a pastor. You don't hire, anyway, whatever. And he was teaching through the book of Revelation. Well, he was running out of time because we just hired a pastor. So the last sermon, he said, I want to talk to you about a heresy, the heresy of dispensationalism. And it's like, what? This is a dispensationalism? Now, his concern was that believing in pre-tribulationalism, which they'll talk about in the sermons, and we will in about 105 weeks, um, <laughs> says that we're going to be taken up the rapture will occur before the tribulation. That is today's sermon, by the way. And his argument was, that was just believed by Christians who don't want to suffer. Well, it is true I don't want to suffer. But you know, the reality is Christians have suffered throughout history. So to say we're not going to suffer one more suffering is, well, if you believe Christians aren't going to suffer, go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Okay. Years ago, when we were newly married, we visited a small church. We were thinking about changing churches. It was actually just starting out. It actually met in a school. We went one Sunday. The pastor invited us over to his house for the evening Bible study. We went. One elder was leading it. With five minutes left in the class, he said, I've got something. We don't have time to discuss it but I have something I need to share with you. And he launched into a 30-minute tirade. Did I tell you he had five minutes left? A 30-minute tirade against dispensationalism. Well, the pastor was very apologetic when we left. And the next day, he called me and said, and to talk to me about this. Well, I had people over. I actually had a Catholic class going on in my house, but that's a whole different story. Um, I said, I'll call you back in 30 minutes. 30 minutes later, I hadn't called back because the people were still there. And he called back because he was so worried that I would be offended by what was said. On the flip side, I was talking to a guy about some other church that were not dispensational. He goes, do they believe the Bible? I said, yeah, they believe the Bible. Do you see how we have a tendency to take our distinctions, pour them into concrete, and point heretic at those who disagree? Now, the dilemma that we run into is to begin to believe that certain things are the most important thing, and if we reject that, to then say it's not important at all. We don't have to fall into those distinctions, right? We believe that it is important how you interpret the Scripture. We believe that it is important that God has dealt with different people at different times in different ways. We believe that's important. 
We believe that the nation of Israel still has a purpose in God's plan. God made promises to the nation of Israel that are not going to be fulfilled through the church. They're going to be fulfilled through the nation of Israel by the grace of God. We believe that. And we believe that those passages dealing with the nation of Israel are not to be spiritualized and converted into some blessing for the church. Now, but we also believe that there's continuity in the Scripture. I mean, Ted has preached a series on the Ten Commandments. Why would you do that? That's back there in that Old Testament law. Do you know that the very first series of lessons I had in this class, when I taught in this class, was on the Ten Commandments? Why? Because we believe the Ten Commandments reveal the character of God. And nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that's not is the Sabbath. And even that, you can argue, was kind of, well, it's all the Sabbath. But that's a whole different discussion. We believe in distinctions. We believe in continuity. We believe that dispensationalist gives us a window to look at the Scripture and see what God, was required, what God required of people at different times. We are not, I am not, an ultra-dispensationalist and start putting these barriers that say, ah, that was one thing and has nothing to do with us. It always fascinates me. They can find the verse where everything before that verse doesn't apply to us and everything after that verse does apply to us. Well, I've got this problem. I really like the Sermon on the Mount. It's on the wrong side of that barrier. But you know what? I believe it was the same God dealing with the same fallen humanity. But I am not required to follow the Sermon on the Mount in order to have a relationship with God. But if I have a relationship with God, I will want to follow the instructions that God has given me. But if I ever believe at any time that I'm doing all of this through my own effort, apart from faith in God, I'm lost. It's always faith. It's always Jesus. It's always God. Beginning to end. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you keep giving us second chances. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to your revealed will to us today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.